Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I'm pleased to tell you that both On the Cusp and I have now joined the American Enterprise Institute. At a speech earlier this month, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg addressed a subject that's extremely unusual in NATO circles and indeed wider national security circles, and that is resilience. And here is what Stoltenberg said. Our militaries cannot be strong if our societies are weak. So our first line of defense must be strong societies. And then he described the importance of power grids, of ports, of roads, of airports, and he could have added people. And resilience is, in fact, emerging as a key issue for NATO member states. And Stoltenberg's speech was pivotal in demonstrating that the alliance is now taking the issue seriously. If civil society descends into chaos as a result of a cyber attack or a pandemic or a contingency of a kind that we have not yet experienced, it doesn't matter whether the country has a phenomenally well-equipped warfighting machine. And indeed, that's why the West's adversaries target civil society. As we speak, the Norwegian government has just announced that Russia was behind the hacking attack on its parliament. Now, few people have more expertise in resilience than Craig Fugate, who led the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is the American Civil Contingencies Agency, for the duration of Barack Obama's administrations. So, Craig, if I may ask you first, how safe are America's ports, airports, roads and railways? Well, we're having a hard time just dealing with climate change and, and natural hazards. And as something that we looked at after the 9-11 terrorist attack was this idea of asymmetric warfare, how non-state actors and sponsored state actors could disrupt infrastructure, particularly transportation and communications. And this was really in the context of what the U.S. role would be in supporting NATO of moving good supplies and military and how vulnerable our transportation and port system could be both to physical as well as cyber attacks. And as you mentioned, this is nothing new. This has been discussed since 2001 at the very latest during the Cold War. It was discussed in, especially in Europe, how to keep transportation safe, how to keep communication safe. But then it sort of was forgotten a little bit, which is why Jens Stoltenberg's speech about resilience was so pivotal, because it signals that NATO is taking it seriously now. And, and the point that he made uh, that if our societies are weak, it doesn't matter how strong our militaries are, I think is <laughs> very apt because it's, it's absolutely true. It doesn't matter how much money we spend on the armed forces if an adversary can bring our countries down by targeting civil society. And this is an interesting evolution. FEMA represents for the ambassador to NATO. We have the chair or we have the seat for the civil emergency protection committees. And so I actually watched this play out in the evolution from 2009 through 2016, how NATO was approaching this challenge of looking at the vulnerabilities to the natural hazards, but increasingly asymmetric conflicts and how that could trigger possible activation of NATO in the event of some form of aggression. And what was the answer? The answer was actually interesting. In the beginning, it was kind of this vague discussion. It was almost Lord of the Rings. There was some vague threat from the East. When I joined this at FEMA, Russia was actually part of the non-member nations that attended our meetings. Ultimately, conditions deteriorated, and we went from talking about a vague threat to very specifically talking about Russia. Really looking at what happened in the Georgia, in the Ukraine, how Russia was able to exploit 
vulnerabilities there, either by causing crisis or another thing that we saw is when a country's people have lost confidence in their government, how much more vulnerable they were from outside influences. And NATO began looking at this from the standpoint of not only do we have to worry about military attacks, but things like disasters could become destabilizing if nations were not able to manage that. Because if the public in a crisis felt that the nation had not done well or had lost confidence, that would open up vulnerabilities. And so NATO really took a very serious look at building resilience wasn't necessarily about just military resilience. It was about the institutions, the infrastructures, and the confidence of government. Because what they ultimately were looking at was, would this potentially lead to an activation of the charter to come to the defense of each other in time of attack? And how we could minimize that by helping nations build more resilience to the known hazards, but also emerging hazards like cyber. That's a very interesting point. So that there is a threshold by which non-kinetic attacks could be treated as an Article 5 type incident and not just the the sort of attacks along the lines of 9-11, but attacks on our infrastructure, for example. So this is not something for just for disaster planners. This is real national security at the highest level because it can bring a country to its knees. Craig, can I ask you, if we can put this in terms that everybody can understand, what would it mean if an adversary, perhaps aided by Mother Nature, perhaps exploiting a natural disaster, were able to immobilize a large chunk of the let's say, the, the road network in America or the large number of the power plants? What we were basically dealing with, again, I think when people think of NATO, they always think about the military. And there's actually a very large part of NATO that's the political leadership and the policymakers. And the concern was that as relationships were deteriorating and as we were watching how Russia was taking opportunities in a crisis, that the concern was what if a crisis, whether it was a natural hazard that resulted in a disaster or some other event, reduced the capabilities of member nations to fulfill their defense role and create a vulnerable period of time where if actions were taken, would NATO be able to respond rapidly? And this is a very politically sensitive issue for the policymakers, because while everybody says we will absolutely come to each other's aid under the treaty, we don't ever want to have to do that. And there was a lot of debate about how much of an event could trigger this and what we could do to minimize those vulnerabilities. And so it came back to this idea that the more resilient each member of NATO is, the greater protection we have against having to invoke the article of mutual assistance and therefore actually reducing the risk of conflict. And so it's actually more about keeping the peace than anything else was the more resilient a nation is to deal with the crisis, the more they can mitigate those impacts, the less likely we would create situations that an adversary may take advantage of, resulting in increasing risk of conflict. And we don't have to imagine how an adversary might take advantage of a natural disaster or, or contingency crisis caused by other nature. We saw, for example, in Italy during the worst parts of, of Italy's COVID crisis, when EU allies didn't step in to help early on, that changed later. But in those early weeks, when EU allies didn't step in, Russia and China stepped in in a very cunning way by not sending a great deal of supplies. And maybe it wasn't really that big of help at all, but they were there. They scored a PR victory. And 
it's important to remember this is not in the realm of, of imagination. It's real and it's happening already. And another thing that's happened already is a cyber attack in 2017 called NotPetya that struck Ukraine first. It was subsequently traced to Russia. And then it was targeted against Ukraine. It brought down government agencies, a whole range of companies from power companies to banks to airports and, and indeed hospitals. So Craig, in a situation like that, what can the government do? Because society grinds to a halt. Well, this is one of the big challenges that the NATO members have wrestled with, as well as the EU. And that is, how do we take all of our members and get them to take steps to start protecting the key infrastructures and the backup systems and working through these exercises of how they would mitigate or respond to these events? And again, this is, you know, on the world stage, we would really like to get to the point where we dial down the tensions between these member countries, perceived adversaries. But until we get there, I think it's important that we look at how these vulnerabilities could be exploited. They could actually be caused by third-party actors, or they could be totally separate, but then they create openings. And again, not everything is going to be military conflict that could cause crisis within NATO or even within the EU. And we watched this with Greece and Turkey. It's this idea that we need to minimize the vulnerabilities of creating situations that could be exploited, that those political events may turn into conflict. And this was, I think, really why NATO, and this is when President Obama attended the last NATO meeting, I realized a lot of people are thinking there's natural disasters or disasters, natural hazards with climate change. But the real impetus within NATO for the communique on building resiliency was to avoid government crisis, to avoid situations that could be exploited, and to better not just you know, defend each other or defend ourselves, but to reduce the vulnerabilities that could occur from what, again, was increasingly being seen as this risk of asymmetric warfare turning into a hot war with direct conflict. And that's what we all want to avoid, regardless of which side we are on, because there are civilians are definitely not the winners in military conflicts. So how do you prevent a situation like that? Because it, the task of resilience planners surely must be to make sure that something like that doesn't happen. That time it was in, in Ukraine, but it's certainly possible in other countries as well. So as a contingency plan of which of the lifelong kind or career long kind, what sort of measures do you put in place other than, oh, they must have better cyber defense? What else can you do to increase resilience? I think we have to take a step back. And this was really our conversation within the Civil Emergency Planning Committee. And that was, we're not going to stop all events. We're going to get hit. Things are going to happen. And we said, well, first thing we need to do is define what we consider being resilient, because that doesn't mean nothing happens. And so we started out at the various highest levels. And we said, for a nation to be considered resilient, we saw that there were several key areas. The first one was, they had to be able to defend themselves. And part of what NATO, the agreement is, every country works as hard as they can to be able to defend themselves against known adversaries to avoid the need to activate in NATO to go to war. So you got to be able to defend yourself. The other thing we saw that was very key was you need to ensure the enduring constitutional government. And again, the phrasing in Europe is kind of interesting because what we would use in the U.S. sounded like keeping a dictator in office. But it was really about maintaining a legal government through crisis, through secession planning, 
in case you saw something happen like COVID-19. I mean, this is, actually goes back to nuclear attack planning, but it's very applicable as we saw with COVID and other events. What happens if the government leadership is incapacitated or cut off in a crisis? Are the backups able to step in with legal authority to act on behalf of that nation? So you know, defend yourself and maintain your legal government without losing that in a crisis. The third thing was protecting the economy, the finances of government. And as again, we've seen just distresses on depressions and recessions and economic. But imagine what would happen in a cyber attack if now suddenly the EU, the euro is showing up in your accounts as zeros and the ones and zeros don't add up anymore and you can't go to the ATMs and get any money. And then the fourth one was kind of the catch all. And that was bad things are going to happen. Earthquakes will happen. Droughts will happen. Floods will happen. Climate change is driving more extreme weather events that exceed our plans and capabilities. Governments needed to have a credible capability to respond to those events. It doesn't mean everything goes well. It doesn't mean we're going to solve every problem, nor can we prevent everything. But the key thing was, and this is something I learned from my counterparts in Australia, was when government is no longer seen as legitimate by the people in a crisis, you lose the ability to change that outcome. And so what we were looking for with NATO wasn't that we were going to stop everything or everything would be minimized but that the government would have a credible response that the people would understand they're doing everything possible, that there is not a wedge that an adversary could drive between the people and the government. And I think that's a challenge because a lot of this goes back to things that we weren't used to doing, which would be transparent and open to people. We've seen how in the United States that has failed us in being open and transparent about COVID. And so it's this ability to first defend ourselves, ensure that we can maintain a a legal government of transition during crisis if leadership is incapacitated, ensuring that our finances are secure and protected against you know, the disruptions that are occurring, and that we have the capability to effectively manage a crisis, maintaining the confidence of the people in that response, which means bad things are going to happen, things won't be perfect, there'll be losses, but government is doing what is an inherent government role, which is managing that crisis bringing in the resources, telling people what we know, telling people we don't know, but most importantly, is reassuring people that we're doing everything possible so that we don't give anybody that wedge to drive in. In the era of social media disinformation campaigns, you can imagine how difficult that's going to be. I don't need to imagine. I know how difficult it is because that's what we are seeing in many countries at the moment. Some countries that are handling the, have been handling the COVID crisis well, are the ones that have been communicating clearly and transparently and openly with the population. And they seem to be enjoying greater trust among the population, even though things are difficult, whereas other countries are really, we are seeing governments really struggling with public trust. And this is not just a theoretical consideration. It's, it has immediate impact, I think, on people's response to government instructions. So many people say, well, I don't care what they say because they lie anyway, or I won't wear a mask because the government lies anyway, or I won't wear a mask because the government is wrong about the science. So how can a government communicate openly with the population about difficult things, including telling them what needs to be done without having them respond in a cynical fashion? Well, you're not going to do that at the point of a crisis and then have credibility. That means you have to be transparent and forthright and communicate. You need to present information as what we know and don't know. And we need to understand that the public as a whole will often 
take our information and process it. They'll pull in other sources. They'll check. They'll go on the internet. They'll research it with friends and family. And we're not always going to change their minds. So I think what we have to do is give them the best possible information so that at least they're making informed choices. But one of the things that we've seen in the U.S. and other parts of the world is when we devalue our science, when we find that the facts don't agree with our political positions, so we, we then start misinformation, or we are afraid to tell people what the truth is because they'll panic and won't handle it, which I still haven't found research that says that happens, then we, we're not credible. And this went back to the original idea within NATO. If our governments are not considered trusted agents by the public day to day in a crisis, an adversary can exploit that and use that to divide and drive divisions within a country. And again, if you think in asymmetric warfare, when you can start pitting one part of the population against another part of the population, it's much easier and much cheaper for an adversary to exploit that and literally having us fight ourselves for their benefit. It's the cheapest form of warfare ever, and it's no surprise that our adversaries are, are engaging in it. And as you say, they don't need to do very much anymore because we do so much of it ourselves by bickering and distrusting one another. And it is one of our greatest weaknesses today, I think, these divisions within society between old and young, and even more so within different societal groups. And it's as if we are offering ourselves up as a potential targets or adversaries, because why would they not exploit that? I want to ask about one more thing, and that is our dependence on technology. So 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, and certainly 50 years ago, we didn't have to worry about cyber attacks because we just, well, we could worry about them, but we just were not that dependent on technology. So it wouldn't really matter if, if another country brought down some sort of cyber infrastructure. And even 10 years ago, many of us were still using paper maps to find our way in, in new cities. And now we all use Google Maps or, or Apple Maps or, or whichever online maps we use. And in fact, every minute of every life relies on some aspect of digital technology to work, to make life more convenient. And it is more convenient. It's extremely convenient most of the time. But I think of it as, as a convenience trap where the more convenient life becomes, the more vulnerable we become. because. Even one successful attack on that infrastructure could cause enormous damage and chaos. What do we do about that? Should we limit our use of smartphones? No, I don't think we go back, but I think we also have to eliminate single points of failure and single lines of communication. If you go back to the history of the Cold War, the phone system in the United States, when we had the monopoly of AT&T, was a very resilient system. The internet was actually created by the defense our DARPA research to be a survivable communication system that one point cut in the cable could not sever communication. It was a distributed system. And as we have moved forward to the new technology, we did not bring those requirements up. We're not building 300 mile an hour microwave towers that can stand up to overpressures of nuclear power. We don't have underground facilities. And as we've gone to more of the higher tech, we've created more single points of failure. Everything from GPS to the IP protocol, which drives almost all our communications. So I always like remind people in the U.S., we're hopefully learning this before it becomes too painful a lesson. And we, and we watch what happened in other countries. But in the United States, the military is reinstituting what many people consider the old school. The Navy had stopped teaching celestial navigation with a sextant because they had GPS. 
now that's a requirement for midshipmen. The Army went back to, in maneuvering warfare, teaching people how to read maps. They actually referred to a lot of their soldiers as GPS babies who have never operated outside of a GPS environment. The military is also now looking at their communications, and they're going back to more HF radio because of vulnerabilities to satellites. So I think domestically, we also, as crisis planners, have to go and look at what's your backup when the phone system goes down. And sometimes it's to go back to the radio and TV broadcasters that can often cover areas that we don't have any other way to do. It's about reengaging in radio systems and a variety of other things that people said, well, this is so convenient. And I'm like, yeah, but we, it's not resilient. And I think we have two choices. We're going to have to maintain a lot of legacy systems that give us multiple redundancies. But we also need to start looking at how do you build resilience in systems that the financial rewards are for efficiency, not excess capacity, not backups, not redundancy, not hardening of systems. And that's, I think, where government may need to make some decisions about how do we ensure that these systems are survivable and regulate redundancies that would not otherwise be driven by financial return on investment. Lastly, one aspect I think is, is human resilience and the willingness of people to think about what might happen and, and prepare for it. And as you said earlier, many governments assume that, oh, people would panic if we told them what might happen. So we better not tell them anything. And lo and behold, COVID comes along and governments realize that well, maybe we should have said something so that people didn't panic by or that, that they didn't get frightened by a pandemic because they didn't understand how it works. And one I think a good example of what can be done is a leaflet that the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency put out two years ago called If Crisis of War Comes. And back then, people smiled at it, they sort of ridiculed it, and then thought that Sweden was somehow paranoid about threats. Turns out it was not. And, and it was a, quite a good thing that every household in the country had that leaflet. And in Latvia, secondary schools now teach national security, they have a national security curriculum that involves kids, teenagers, learning how to read a map and use a compass. So I think we give too little faith to the resilience and skills of our fellow human beings. So maybe governments give them too little credence. Well, that's again why you know we tend to, I think, even within NATO, was there so much focus on what government was going to do, what I call government-centric problem solving. And that may be good in your combat, roles, but it doesn't work in a crisis well with the general population. We weren't engaging the business community. We weren't engaging the public. We tended to talk at people and expect them to do as they were told in a crisis instead of, why would we explain to people? Why do we need to educate people? Well, they'll do what we tell them to do. And I'm like, really? You got kids? You know, you're negotiating with your kids. What do you make you think the public is any different? And so I think it, it goes back to the more we can engage people, or we can give information. And again, there's a reality that for a lot of people, you try to talk to them about being resilient in crisis. They're like, not today. I'm busy. My life's a crisis. You know, come tell me when something bad is about to happen. But if we can get people just to take simple steps, we can start building resiliency. And, and again, one of the things that you know, we found that if you ask people to do everything, they just get overwhelmed. So just give them one thing. So what's your family communication plan? If a crisis happens, let's take the terrorist attacks in Paris and in Brussels and how many people couldn't get through. And I'm like, do you have the ability to text all your key folks and your family and friends just to say, I'm OK? And sometimes it isn't the system goes down, but it gets overwhelmed. And so just getting people to think if a crisis happens, 
again, another terrorist attack, another earthquake, another wildfire, another flood. If you can just have all your contacts in your phone where you can just send out a quick message, we're okay or we need help. To think of how many people that in these crises, the, the biggest thing is, I don't know if my family's okay, or I don't know if my friend's okay, or my kids are off to university and, and I can't get through to them. I don't know if they're okay. If we would just take one step and do a family communication plan, because it's applicable across so many different vulnerabilities. Indeed. So what is your family communications plan? Do you have one? And if you don't, make sure to make one because it will be useful in, in lots of situations, as Craig Fugate just said. And indeed, think about your other vulnerabilities, for example, what to do if you didn't have access to Google Maps or Apple Maps. You can tweet me at Elizabeth Bro, And if you like this podcast, feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as well. Many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.